AJ's features for much longer. He becomes a simulacrum of AJ, and AJ's disappointment in him is compounded as a consequence. He is a child, eclipsed by his father's shadow. Now he, this child, is watching AJ as AJ stands in the Eden in Bishop Auckland, admiring the new lights, the upholstered rows, the gilded paintwork, just as AJ will stand in the Royal in concert, in the Royal in Blythe, in the Tynemouth Circus in North Shields, in the Metropole in Glasgow. Because, AJ will tell him, there is a rhythm to names and a poetry to places. Each one saved from the dark by A.J. the impresario, A.J. the dramatist, who invents plays to draw the crowds to his venues, words tumbling from him so fast that A.J. can barely write quickly enough to bind them to the page before they drift away. But A.J.'s ideas are light, and only verbiage lends them weight. Slowly A.J. learns. A.J. is no playwright. The dramas cease to be replaced by sketches and skits. All this he witnesses, boy and young man, this moon to A.J.'s son, and in attic rooms he practices his stage routines before empty seats and the scrutiny of mannequins. Chapter 3 It is 1906. Picard's museum, the Panopticon, formerly the Britannia Music Hall, and the haunt of whores. Old, even by the standards of these places, and hard with it, but Glasgow was always this way. A. E. Picard, with his Van Dyke beard and cutaway suit, will install waxworks in the Panopticon, and a carnival. A. E. Picard, with his distorting mirrors and images of Chinese torture, will install a freak show in the Panopticon, and a zoo. The shadows of the Panopticon the pots and pans will smell of hay and shit, and the despair of human and animal alike. He is the bonus on this night, the extra turn, no billing. He is sixteen years old, and is wearing clothes liberated from A.J. He shortens and patches, he tucks and cuts, all in the same room in which he perfects his turns. Only the coat he leaves untouched, because... It is his father's best. He blinks against the lights in this primitive place. No seats in a room that can billet only a trio for musical accompaniment, and poor scrapings at that. Laced ladies who smell of sherry and mothballs, and struggle to make their instruments heard above the clamour of the audience. He begins. In that moment he loses himself, and will never be found again. And the audience laughs, not against him, but with him, like the wind blowing in a well-turned sail. And he feeds upon it, and it washes over him as the many become one, harmonising in their joy. Only as he takes his bow does he see his father. It is amateur night. A.J. has come to sup with A.E. Picard, and perhaps to seek out new meat for his own grinder. What A.J. witnesses is his son in borrowed threads, a familiar coat, a top hat fresh from the box, cavorting unexpectedly on a dusty stage for the drunks and the catcallers. He cannot read the expression on A.J.'s face, but he knows that A.J. has no tolerance for secrets. 
gives no succour to indiscipline. He runs, but not to his mother, not to Madge. And later, as he tries to recall the scent and the beauty of her, and later, as he searches in vain for her grave, its marker lost, and later on the set of the Oceana apartments, he will think that he should have run to Madge more often, because as he treads the boards of Picard's museum, the final sands are already funnelling through the hourglass of his mother's life, and she will be dead within two years. So he does not seek safety at home, behind Madge's skirts. He ventures to the Metropole, A.J.'s lair. He will confront the old lion in its den. A.J. is waiting for him, waiting for him to explain the ruined trousers, waiting for him to explain the purloined coat. The top hat is gone. He loses it in his flight from the...